Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Foster. Today, I'm talking with Hugh McKee, who is a solutions architect at Lightbend. He has a long career building applications that evolve slowly, that officially utilize their infrastructure, and that were brittle and prone to failure. But that all changed when he started building reactive, asynchronous, actor-based systems. Hugh is also, also the author of the new O'Reilly Report, Designing Reactive Systems, which provides some high-level insight into how actors and actor systems can be used to create lightweight business systems that evolve quickly, that can scale, and that can run without stopping. Hello, Hugh, and it's great to have you on this podcast. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, no, we're very excited. Um, so let me just jump right in. I'll, I'll get started with the first question. Um, so what is the actor model, and, and why is this architecture an ideal choice for building today's distributed systems? The um, For me, the actor model is the greatest thing since sliced bread, I think. Uh, when I ran into it a, a, a few years ago, it, uh, it it really did change things for me in, in ways that I just love how you run into a technology that just, just kind of turns everything on its head, and I love that. And that, that's really what happened with the actor model. And the thing I like about it is the, the abstraction that it provides for building systems. And it, it really covered things kind of at two levels. That, and it made it really fun, both in the kind of the architecture and design of the system, as well as in the actual implementation of the code. So in the architecture and design of the system, the actor model gave us this abstraction layer that was simple and elegant, but, but powerful. In a way, it's almost like you've got this infinite box of Lego blocks and you can build things in any way that you want. And it's that fundamental model of uh, actors that are really simple where actors communicate each other with each other asynchronously and send each other messages. And that's it. And then on the code side, the, the, the fun is that you're, you're able to decompose a system into a collection of actors from say high level actors that live for a long time to relatively low level actors that may only live for a very short period of time, but they're all very focused on what they have to do. It's kind of, a, you know, they do one thing and do it well, you know, the, the kind of the Unix philosophy. But it was, it was nice from a coding standpoint because you could build systems that had things like high levels of concurrency. Didn't, you didn't have to worry about threads or locks or semaphores, but you were doing the kinds of things that you would normally have to do in threads and locks and, and with semaphores and trying to build highly concurrent systems. And then, uh, you know, the whole idea that the, the actor system that you were dealing with wasn't, was no longer constrained to a single machine that you, in a way, I thought of it as you're, you're writing code that, um, had a, a JVM that, that scaled infinitely as large as you wanted to go. So we were no longer constrained by the boundaries of a single JVM, a single machine. We could think through the design and implementation of systems that um, really spans um, a much broader environment. It was very liberating. No, I mean that's that's definitely really interesting, and, and it's something that I've I've heard a lot about this you know, about the actor model because I know it's been around for some time, but I know it's really getting a lot of renewed interest. I think you know as folks look to kind of transition you know in, into you know finding new ways to build distributed systems. Um, in your opinion, how do actor-based systems manage requests to perform tasks compared with more traditional synchronous-based computer systems? The biggest difference is that whole um, exchange of messages. And uh, in the report, you, I really kind of built on the concept of, in a way, we can think of actors like humans that are texting each other. It, it, that I think it's a, an analogy that we can use that has a lot of similarities in that if 
if you send me a text message asking me to do something, you are free to continue to do whatever you want to do. You're not stopped waiting for me to respond. In a synchronous system, when we write synchronous code, of course, the caller waits until the thing that was called responds. In an asynchronous world, in the actor world, you've got this more asynchronous behavior, and it introduces all kinds of interesting dynamics in how you uh, build up the characteristics of your different actors. So that's the biggest thing. And, and part of that also is that uh, because it's asynchronous, it's very efficient technically in that a request from one actor to another uh, doesn't hold a thread. You know, in a tip, say in a typical HTTP type you know, web system or something or, or you know, um, web service type system, request comes in, a thread's allocated to that request and the thread's there until the, you respond. With actors, it's much more dynamic. You, actors are only using threads while they're busy. If, they're, if they don't have anything to do, they're just waiting for something to do. They can they can hold state. They can be in a certain way, but they're extremely lightweight compared to um, uh, threading-based systems. But the fundamental is that that message uh, operation, the messaging operation, where you send me a, a message and maybe you're waiting for and you're asking on me to do something and you're waiting for me to send you a message back. That's the fundamental exchange that's going on in the actors and is, in my mind, is profoundly different than the way we've been building systems, you know, thinking asynchronously for, you know, forever, right? I mean, that's, mm. most of us have grown up building uh, synchronous systems versus something like this, which is all asynchronous. Hmm. No, that's really interesting. How would you say the behavior and implementation of actor clusters contrast with how typical enterprise systems are normally constructed the the biggest thing is that you you are like i said earlier you, you are capable of dreaming up and designing uh and implementing a system that is no longer constrained to a single machine and the actors in this say cluster-based you know kind of virtual jvm in a way this you know it's in, in a way it's these this jvm that spans multiple machines, the actors can communicate with each other as simply uh, no matter where one actor is in another. So if, if it doesn't matter in the code, if two actors happen to reside in the same JVM or if two actors happen to be in different JVMs, it's like one line of code in Scala or, or in Java. There's, you know, we have APIs in Aka for both. But it's like one line of code to send a message from one actor to another. It's really, really simple. Now, what, what happens in the actor system is pretty significant because it's handling things like sending messages between machines over a network and all that. But as a developer, you're not having to deal with that anymore. You're really dealing at this new level of abstraction where you just have actors that are communicating with each other, which in a way frees up developers and architects to think about systems in this way. And then one of the most exciting things, I think, is that you start thinking about systems that can handle the uh, elasticity of the cluster. Things like nodes joining or leaving the cluster can be architectural features at, at actor level. That was my really my, one of my first experiences. We had a, a actor system that we were building that we, from the very beginning, we knew it was going to span you know, multiple machines and the absolutely most fun thing about it was being able to develop you know, actors that were like, like what I called cluster aware, for example. Some actors actually knew about nodes uh, joining and leaving the cluster and, and were able to react to it. This allowed us to build systems that were very elegantly 
powerful in a way in that they could handle things like this, where you know uh, failure was an architectural feature. Is is uh, one way I, I like to think about it is that you 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 know something died or you know you lost a node and it's like okay no problem we know, you know that's expected as part of our architecture. Nodes leaving the cluster is something that the your actors that you develop know how to deal with. It, it's a very uh, really fundamentally different way you know, from like synchronous systems where we, you know, we can scale uh, horizontally, but it's typically in isolated containers that are completely unaware of each other. Here we have basically this container that um, spans you know, multiple machines where, where you have these this tight integration of actors that, that cross machine boundaries. Really? Now, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and you've talked about this a little bit already, but can you talk about the failure and recovery process for actors? Yeah, this, this is really pretty cool. I think in that <laughs> there's in a way, I mean, you'll hear different things, but I kind of look at it at three levels. There's at the actor level where actors are sending each other messages, and kind of back to that text message analogy. Mm. Say, you send me a message and you ask me to do something. This is just like what an actor does. An actor will asynchronously send another actor a message, say, asking it to do something. Now, in the design of the system, if everything works the way we want, you're, you are expecting a message back from me saying, yep, I did that, or here's your result, or something like that. Now, being that this is asynchronous and being like we're two humans, you know, something could happen to me. Mm-hmm. I, my phone could break. Um, I could ignore you. I could have received the message, done the tasks you added or asked me to do, and then tried to send you back a response, but something prevented me from getting the response back. All kinds of things can go wrong. So as a result, you have to have kind of a contingency plan for what are you going to do if you don't hear back from me in some reasonable amount of time, which is up to you to decide. You know, it's not up for me to decide. I'm going to try and do what you asked me to do and get back to you as quickly as possible, but it's not always going to happen. And, and that's what I was saying earlier. As a result, when you're designing actors, failure recovery, failure detection is an architectural feature at this message exchange level. Right away, as a developer, you're starting to think about, right, plan A is I get a response back in a timely manner. Plan B is I don't get a response back. So what do I do when I don't get a response back? You have to start thinking about that at the code level. So that's the first one of the three. The second one is that actors form hierarchies. You know, there's a concept of, of supervisor and worker or parent or child. And uh, an actor can create child actors or, or a supervisor can create worker actors. Mm-hmm. And if a child actor runs into a problem, say it gets an exception, you know, say it's, it's, it's doing something um, uh, that could be a, run into a problem, like reaching out to a, an external service, like a database or something, something that you know, can break. In any case, if, if, a, if a child actor or worker actor runs into a problem, maybe gets an exception, it's not the child that deals with that, it's the parent or the supervisor that deals with that. Mm. So there's a, there's a very nice, uh, well-defined way in this actor hierarchy to have this supervision process where the supervisor looks at the problem and and knows, had plans for how to deal with it. Um, and at the third level is at the cluster level, where, like I was saying earlier again, that if you can have actors that are aware of nodes uh, joining or leaving the cluster and they can and they know about this because the actor system sends them messages saying hey hey a node just joined the cluster or here's a message saying a node just left the cluster 
you can write that actor or implement that actor with its own level of intelligence to know what it should do in the event of changes in the topology of the, of the cluster, which is you know, dealing with things that could be, you know, in the past would be very traumatic. Like losing a machine could be very traumatic in a, an application system. Mm-hmm. If you build your actor system um, in a really robust way, losing a node is like, oh, no, okay, no problem. We know what to do here. It's all planned. It's all built into into the architecture of our system. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think look, even looking forward, and you kind of touched on this um, a little bit about you know, kind of you know, talking about an you know uh, an example you know uh, of a use case. You know, what would you say? What kinds of enterprises are having success with actor-based systems? Um, and ultimately, I mean, what was their transition like from more monolithic-based systems? It's across the board. Um, who's doing things with actor sy- systems? Um, it's funny because. In fun, I guess one of those things is that um, when a architect or developer really starts to internalize what they can do with it, it's almost like they've got this new hammer, and this hammer really works very, very well. You know, and everything's this new nail. You know, actors, mm-hmm. and it's hard not to think about uh, building systems um, without using this 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 technology. I know that's my problem. For example, I just I just when I'm thinking about systems, I think in actors more than anything else, I just kind of almost naturally go there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, eBay recently uh, built a very interesting system. You know, they have super high volumes of transactions and they, they wrote an article recently about uh, building like an eight node ACA cluster that handles around a billion messages per day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that translates to, to like, um, you know, 41 million messages, 41 or 42 million messages, I think per hour or something. It's just phenomenal levels of traffic. Mm. And this thing's running on eight modest, relatively modest um, nodes in a cluster, you know, a couple CPUs, that type of thing. Uh, another one is um, a company called Evo. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, but they have this Wi-Fi mesh network and it's kind of an internet of things where, you know, people in their homes they can get this wi-fi mesh it's like multiple devices in your home it looks like a single single uh, wi-fi device but it actually is multiple devices but those devices there's the state of those devices is being fed back to an aka system on the back end that you can you can access and see and, and configure through a phone app um you know so on the one hand you have ebay doing massive amounts of transactions in a highly reliable cluster you know, running at, at, at super high volumes. And then I, I think on the other end of the spectrum, you've got something like uh, Internet of Things type of company doing some really innovative things with Akka. And I think, if, I don't know all the details of these things, but almost with, by design and you know, just by using these kinds of technologies, you can imagine they're building highly resilient systems that, that don't go down. Like if my Wi-Fi goes down, my wife gets very, very upset. You know, it's just, <laughs> That can't happen, so they can't <laughs> disappoint me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, eBay is the same thing. You know, if they if they go down, they, they they end up in the news. So they both have to have really resilient systems, and and this is the way to do it. But it is really across the board. It's amazing what people are doing uh, with Akka. Uh, the one thing I do run into though is that uh, in many cases developers um, start using Akka mainly for concurrency, but they're uh, almost a, in a way a little bit timid to go into the cluster architectures. Mm. And I, 
I really try and encourage them to go because that's where you really have the fun. You know, when you really start uh, architecting a system that runs in a cluster that has that resiliency and maybe even add in elasticity, you know, auto scaling, things like that. You, you can do these kinds of things with it. And that's what people are doing. Hmm. That's that's really interesting because there does seem to be, you know, a rise in, in in companies and large organizations that are really looking to transition, you know, to this form of technology. So that's really interesting. Um, and I guess further to that, you know, I, I would say you know the biggest challenge, you know, to adopting you know the principles of, of distributed systems is rearchitecting or even refactoring existing systems. What would you say are the best ways to architect legacy systems to take advantage of actors and everything the reactive paradigm has to offer? The um, the biggest transition that people um, need to go through, at least at first, is starting to think asynchronously. Because you know I've been around for a long time, and I love writing software, love building systems, and throughout my whole career, I was doing things synchronously. And when I ran into to Akka, you know, at first in a way it almost makes your head hurt because wow, this is so different than the way we've been doing things before. And it, you know, you really have to um, internalize these new concepts to do it. That whole actor paradigm, the whole asynchronous communication process, the whole, what do I do if it doesn't respond in time, which is kind of the, you know, the, the reactive way of doing things. These are fundamentally different ways of doing things. I can guarantee you it's a lot of fun. It's, it's way more fun than the traditional ways. It's just there is a transition, and you have to just kind of go with it, you know, uh, sink sink yourself into it, and 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 really kind of wrap your brain around uh, around these different concepts, and and just be in a way almost fearless to to go after. It's not. I mean, I'm not saying it's hard. It's just different. Right? Some people say it's hard. I I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's it's just a different way of doing things, and it you know it's but it's fun to to change you know i think that's one of the best things about uh, people in software development that if you're doing things one way for too long then just hang on it's going to change and this is definitely uh, a big change um, in the way way you do things but it is uh, it like i say it's the most fun i've ever had doing doing things mm, no and, and that's interesting to, to hear you say that because i think you know the other companies and other play, you know other developers that i talk to that have moved you know, into this, you know, either, you know, using reactive and using actors or even ACA, you know, have, have, you know, really enjoy it, you know, and definitely kind of have similar stories to tell. Mm -hmm. So this, yeah. that's really interesting. Um, I would say, you know, uh, you know, I always like to ask this question, but, you know, you know, how will you say, you know, the open source community will shape and influence enterprise architecture over the, ne over the next five years, you know, given, you know, you know, especially Lightbend, you know, you know, kind of create, you know, being a steward behind ACA, you know, but also creating a lot of open source software. You know, what role would you, would you say even Lightband plays? You know, in this future. So you saved the easy question for last, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, predicting things in the next five years. Holy cow! <laughs> um, no, actually, in um, in a way, right now, I, I I think things are we're actually in, at this huge inflection point. Mm -hmm. In that, you know, like Gardner said recently that the way we've been building systems is obsolete. Right. And they're right. I mean, if you look at what companies like Netflix is doing and LinkedIn and Gilt and The Guardian and, and so on, is, you know, on and on and on. These companies that have really bought into things like reactive technologies, reactive architectures, microservices, breaking apart the monolith, all these things are being driven 
primarily from open source. And everything that they're doing is something that at Lightbend we've been doing with open source for a long time. Akka is asynchronous. It's, mm-hmm. it, it has been for a long time. Play is another, you know, the, the web, uh, the web app, uh, framework for building you know, web and web services, it's all asynchronous. Uh, Lagarm is another open source project that we just came out with earlier this year, which is focused on uh, microservices. It's all asynchronous as well. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, Lightbend, we're trying to provide these technologies to enable this transition through this fairly significant inflection point. And over the next five years, it's going to be really interesting, I think. Who knows? But one thing I do see happening that I can't wait for it to happen is that, in a way, the um, a lot of the dis- I, I think of it as distractions, you know, like the infrastructure, dealing with getting servers, setting up servers, you know, networking them all together, setting up databases. In my past, we've spent tremendous amounts of time and effort and money doing those types of things. And very quickly, a lot of these things are sinking below the abstraction layer that as businesses and, and technical teams, we're, we're more and more we're getting to focus on really the, the pure essence of what we're trying to accomplish and being able to do that very, very quickly. I mean, the, the whole thing through microservices is being able to evolve your systems very, very quickly where people, you can get, you know, the business can have an idea to do something and that idea doesn't have to wait six months or nine months or a year to get into production. Maybe it's today or next week, or, you know, or sometime this month. You know, much much shorter time scales, which gives companies that com- competitive advantage. That's the motivation for it. And behind that are all these different open source technologies that are driving this. And so it's kind of at the, the level of there's significant changes in the way we're building applications, and it's also there's significant changes in the way we're running those applications in production environments. All of this is getting a, a lot easier to do. And there's a lot more focus on just the functionality application and not all, like I said, not all those other distractions, like spending tons of time setting up the infrastructure to run everything. That definitely makes, you know, a lot of sense. And yeah, it's quite intriguing, I think, when when you think about, you know, ultimately where companies, you know, and and I look at it again from those larger companies that are making this transition, because it seems like some of them, again, are are really jumping on on board. But as we know, I, I think a lot of enterprises are just slower slower to get going. But I think technology like this, and especially I think coupled with a lot of the great inter- innovation that's happening through open source projects and, and companies that, that really you know are behind kind of open source software, I think will really help us get there. Um, and I think that's really exciting, you know, as we kind of look at things, you know, over the next few years, next five years, um, which is really, really great. Um, all right. So, so again, you know, we're, we're talking with Hugh McKee, you know, solutions architect at Lightbend. Um, and Hugh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it.